Hello, I'm your host, Skip Bell. Welcome to Recalculating Adventist Life Now. Let's get started. I am speaking today with Nicholas P. Miller, professor of church history at Andrews University, serving uh, specifically the uh, theological seminary there. Uh, Andrews hosts the International Religious Liberty Institute, and Nick serves that territory throughout the Lake Union of the context of our Adventist faith movement. Uh, welcome, Nick. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Skip. Uh, our topic today, our focus, we might say, is love, liberty, and worship in a time of crisis. Uh, folk, Nicholas Miller, uh, I'd, like, I'd like you to understand where he is coming from in the context of his service. He received his B.A. in theology from Pacific Union College went from there to earn a JD, his law degree from Columbia University Law School, where he was a Stone Scholar and an editor of the Columbia Law Review. He has his PhD in American Religious and Legal History from the University of Notre Dame. He received uh, the award there for the best dissertation of the year in 2010 from that history department. Uh, Nick has argued many church-state cases in state and federal courts. He's appeared before the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of Mitchell v. Helms. He's the author of more than 30 scholarly and professional journal articles and book chapters dealing with issues of church, state, and society. His book on the development of religious freedom in America the Religious Roots of the First Amendment was published by Oxford University Press in the summer of 2012. He probably has some works going on right now of which I'm less familiar. Uh, Nick would rather uh, be known as a teacher, uh, prof throughout those seminary halls. He's a husband, father, an avid surfer, I enjoy looking at the narratives and surfing vicariously as he visits various parts of the world. But Nick, we're glad you could take time to focus on this subject with us. And, and, and I want us to, to start with kind of a response from you specifically as a conservative faith movement, which you and I and, and many of our listeners, though not all, are a part of the Adventist Church. Uh, we, in our context of our faith movement's history, have faced crises like we are today, the COVID-19 virus before. I read some of your work reflecting on the history of the... Um, what we came to call the Spanish flu in 1918 and 1919. As a historian, in the context of the Adventist community specifically, can you share your observations as to how we respond in history to such a crisis? Sure, I'd be happy to, Skip. Um, you know, as a historian, when you come to a time of crisis, uh, a difficulty, a challenge like this coronavirus have, has been, you do tend to look back and say, what prepares us to face this? 
And the immediately obvious answer was this uh, pandemic in, in 1918 uh, that scientists and others were pointing out was the last great time that uh, the world has faced this kind of global outbreak. And uh, it, it's difficult to know because that was at the end of World War One, and so information was not being shared very well between warring powers. And that's why the figures are so vague, but it's estimated that somewhere between oh, 20 to 30 to upwards of 100 million people died at that time. And mm. uh, it was quite the shock to the world system, considering there were probably only about, uh, uh, there were less than a billion people in the world then, maybe closer to uh, 500 million. So that many dead was truly a remarkable number. Um, and of course, the Adventist Church was in existence then. And so I was... I sat down, actually, and did some original research working through the archives of the uh, Adventist Review online, Advent Review and, and uh, Sabbath Herald, as it was known back then. And uh, I went to the month that was the peak month for the second wave of the Spanish flu, and I discovered a, an editorial by our Director of Health, the Secretary of the Health Department of the General Conference, W.A. Rubel. And he mm -hmm. wrote a remarkable editorial, much of which described things that we seem to be seeing on our televisions uh, from Italy and Spain, and then increasingly from our own cities, especially in New York, of uh, hospitals filling up, of uh, uh, coffins beginning to be filled, of morgues taxed to their capacity, additional buildings and tents being put up there was just an overflow of patients and not enough physicians and nurses to go around. And these were paragraphs written more than a hundred years ago, but, but could have been written last week. And so mm -hmm. it was a remarkable comparison between the two events that our church has experienced. Uh, Nick, as you, as you have explored this, and of course, you are a keen observer of what's going on today and interpreting it through history. How, how do you relate to this um, narrative of the church serving when it's a time of challenge or crisis like this, as opposed to retreating this tension between love, service, or fear and retreat. How, how are you relating to that? Well, the, you know, that, was the, that was the culmination of Rublev's article, actually. Uh, he was calling for full church involvement. So some have called for a total member involvement. Uh, these days, it's become a, a theme among some of our senior church leadership. And this was literally what Rublev called for back then in 1918. He said, "Every this is you know, a terrible event, but it's also a time of, of opportunity for every Adventist to become involved in the health outreach of the church. Um, he, he particularly noted that we shouldn't just rely on our doctors or nurses as, as important as they are. It's just the church member who has some level of, of training and skills, knowing how to use some basic health remedies. Um, they were uh, training widely in what we call hydrotherapy, the application of hot and cold fomentations, the kind of thing that people could do in their homes. 
and there was quite a record produced of individuals treated in this way when the symptoms were first mild that would cause that, that would stop that from progressing to the more moderate and then a severe set of symptoms. And so he called on all Adventists and Adventist churches to actually put on health clinics to train their members so they could help their own families and their neighbors. And it, it seems to some degree this is what happened. It, it's interesting. I, I, I read a piece that you had written in which uh, you relate that to uh, his call to break through the barriers of race or class, and we see those very present in our uh, current time. And these, these natural remedies, and yeah, it's an interesting observation, Nick, that in the context of our faith body, we have something to share in this time of crisis uh, that, that breaks through economic and class barriers. There, there is an interesting story from our uh, seminary of, of decades ago from Minnesota. Tell us briefly about that. Sure. I, uh, I didn't even know there was an Adventist seminary in Minnesota until I investigated this story. But apparently uh, it was originally a Swedish seminary or something that transitioned uh -huh. to an English-speaking seminary, a Hutchinson Seminary based in Hutchinson, Minnesota. And there were about 120 students there, and 90 of them in the fall of, of 2018 came down with symptoms of of the influenza. And at that time, fatality rates were as high as 10%. Um, wow. And serious cases would leave lifelong debilitating uh, impact on people. And so they treated these 90 students with these natural methods. As soon as they began showing symptoms, they didn't wait till there was full-fledged pneumonia, they would uh, put them in isolation, give them rest, uh, give them a, ba a balanced immune-boosting diet, and then engage in these hot and cold treatments, putting uh, hot towels on the chest and uh, neck as well as the back, and uh, then following up with a, a chilled towel. And all 90 of those individuals not only did not die, there were no fatalities, but none of them developed more serious pneumonia. They all uh, stopped it at mild to moderate symptoms. Um, this isn't just an internal Adventist story. The, the public health officer of the city of, of Hutchinson certified that no other institution in the state of Minnesota had close to such impressive treatment results. Um, I've s seen this story repeated in other places. Apparently a similar thing happened at, at, at Southern College and at Oakwood University, both of which were in operation then. Uh-huh. Well, if, if our focus is uh, love and service and liberty in a time of crisis, I think this, uh, this is an interesting place to start because it says uh, in a time of challenge, there is something that can be offered in love and service if we don't retreat, but we serve the public in, in that way. That's helpful. Um, and I'd just actually like to, to, to touch on something you raised about the despair, you mm -hmm. know, the, um, the no distinctions between race and class and sex. And 
there's been a significant coverage in the news of the disparate impact the coronavirus outcomes have had on minority communities, especially the black community. In some mm -hmm. places, 70% of those that die are black. And even though the background population in those areas, they're only 25 to 30% of the population. And I think we're seeing a combination of, uh, you know, what happens with lower economic groups who don't have access to health care. Uh, but that access to health care is also driven, I believe, by racial disparities and historic uh, racism and, and some of that which continues to the present. But I think that, that these modalities that we're talking about are not dependent on expensive medical treatments and systems and are the yes. kinds of things that can be used by church members within those minority and economically deprived communities and can help in a significant way where people are unable to have the kind of access to the institutional health care that um, that many others do and I would urge your listeners you know we need to be responsible about this can't just start throwing hot towels around but if you google <laughs> on the internet and look for hydrotherapy um, regimens on YouTube. There's some very good videos put up by various Adventist leaders from Loma Linda, from Weimar, and elsewhere that detail how to carry this out in a safe way that could benefit not only your own family and church members, but neighbors as well. There is a contribution to be made in terms of wellness, uh, immunity, uh, therapies that are natural and simple, yet applied with knowledge, uh, as you're pointing out, uh, yeah, that can be very, very helpful, and we can, we can serve. Now, I want to move uh, toward this sense of what it says about liberty and freedom. Crisis tends to tighten controls. Um, there is a sense uh, in our society, among us, if you will, the people, uh, of our, our uh, government as we work together uh, to have a response. We look for a responsible response, an engagement from our government. And at the same time, we worry about uh, the consequences of that response to freedom and liberty. So questions of freedom, questions of liberty, of religious liberty come up in the process of a crisis. As a scholar, as a historian and church leader, uh, what are your comments uh, on that issue and reflections for us? So that's a great question. You know, Adventists are a very eschatologically minded people. Uh, we came about through a, a belief in the imminent and urgent second coming, and uh, we tend to grow through evangelistic campaigns and prophecy seminars which emphasize last day events and a time of crisis where the government uh, usurps certain liberties and religious liberties, and so we're always on the lookout for this, and, um, and, and we should be. The Bible teaches this. And yet, on the other hand, sometimes we can become overly focused and overly sensitive to any inf apparent infringement on liberty. And certainly, you know, during this coronavirus time, most churches have been closed uh, by government order or at least by strong suggestion and counsel. 
And so some are wondering, you know, is this part of, is this the beginning of the kinds of intrusion and removal of civil liberties that we've, that we've talked about in the past? And while certainly we have to watch where this is going, those of us who've studied church and state and, and uh, history at this point believe that most of the restrictions the government is putting into place are in fact justified and necessary to preserve the public health. And, you know, I look back again at the history of 1918, and it was very interesting. Our early Adventist pioneers were very sensitive to issues of religious freedom and church and state and the Constitution. But as I explored that history, I came across uh, details that our churches and schools and evangelism campaigns had to be closed for periods of up to two months. And yet no one was raising issues of religious liberty or constitutional rights being taken away. Uh, as a people, we recognized the legitimate health concerns of the authorities. And, we, and this was at a time when there was no attending church by streaming or through the Internet, right? I mean, at, at that stage, they just had to stay home and worship with their families. But they seemed to actually have more patience than we do today in many circles. Of, of of allowing this to happen and um, so uh, a, a graduate student of mine David Hamstra who's a, a pastor in Canada came up with a little phrase that I thought was very helpful he said closing churches to stop coronavirus isn't yet Revelation 13 it's Leviticus 13 so Revelation 13 mm. is the famous chapter in Re Revelation that talks about this end time crisis where the government uh, combines with uh, religious leaders to put in place regulations regarding worship and, and required enforced worship. Um, and that simply isn't happening at this point. But Leviticus 13 is the part of the Old Testament that details uh, quarantine. The Actually, the, the Israelite, the Jewish nation, God gave to them certain prescriptions that were, as far as I know, quite unique in the ancient world, that people who appeared to be showing the symptoms of some infectious disease would be examined by the priest and set aside and kept in quarantine for a, a seven-day period, which would prevent them from attending church or anywhere else, and then reassessing at the end of that time. And, and if they had the disease, they might have to go outside the camp for in, in perpetuity. In fact, in Christ's day, uh, there were lepers still living outside the community. And it's interesting, Christ himself seemed to support this notion of quarantine. You may recall where he healed ten lepers. And then when they'd been healed, he sent them off to the priest uh, to be uh, counted as, as cleansed. So Christ wow. himself sort of supported this whole apparatus of quarantine that was based on Leviticus 13. There, there is a sense in which one could look at Leviticus 13 and say that that uh, practice, um, uh, and I don't want to get into, you know, chasing the rabbit of how much of that was contextual to their experience at that time, but at the very least, God saw a sense of uh, health and wellness and concern for the people in terms of that practice at being years, centuries ahead of time that 
quarantine was not part of the knowledge of the people at that time. That, that is interesting. So, yeah, exactly. And obviously, we don't, we're looking for the principles involved, not the actual strict regulations. And, and the <laughs> principle is, you know, removing people with, uh, uh, that might be suspected of, hold, of carrying an infectious disease uh, to safeguard the community. And, you know, with the coronavirus, it, it may seem a bit different. We're sort of isolating everyone. But the problem is you can be a carrier and be asymptomatic. So, you know, in applying those principles, in the absence of widespread testing, which we need to press our government leaders to move towards, um, and I confess I think they've been dilatory and, uh, and, and somewhat negligent in not coordinating this more fully and exhaustively, but here we are, we have to live with what we've got, but we really can't move freely about society until we have a way before we have a vaccine or a cure, we need a way to test people and isolate those who, who are infected uh, if we're ever going to mm -hmm. open society up. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the, there's two other uh, texts that I added to this Revelation 13, Leviticus 13 uh, combination, and that is 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, uh, which counsels us to act with love and prudence towards others we hear some Christians talking about my right to worship and my right to gather with others, uh, but really, do we have rights to do things that are going to harm other people and harm our neighbors? And even if we had those rights, wouldn't love counsel that we refrain from exercising them uh, until such time as we can meet and carry out these things safely? And then that's where Romans 13 comes in, uh, where Romans 13 authorizes a government, says governments, uh, leaders, are ministers of God, to protect us from evil, to promote good. And insofar as they're doing those things, and so far they seem to be, then we should respect and obey and follow. We do believe that at some point in the future, and it may be the near future, there will be overreach. We've seen some hints of that already. The mayor of New York closed synagogues and churches and then those that refused to close he threatened with permanent closure well mm. I, I think he's probably going too far there uh, other places have banned even drive-in churches where people stay in their cars and to me that seems a little extreme uh, you allow people to go through drive-throughs at restaurants and in other places and if mm -hmm. uh, if there was a drive-in church seems to me that's uh, pretty minimally risky and uh, I think so we have to we have to stay alert but on the whole for these next few weeks anyway it seems that worshiping from home worshiping online the government hasn't outlawed worship what it has outlawed is physical gathering and because of the internet uh -huh. because of our modern technology we can continue to worship together and uh, I think most of us believe we should we should continue doing this while this pandemic is still uh, killing people. Uh, your observations regarding overreach kind of invite us to think of the lessons that can be learned in time of crisis. You you have described that the tension between love. Uh, service 
individual freedom in the response is, is worked out in terms of what is a loving action that is responsible to protect the health and serve the health of others. But you've described that in doing so, it's possible for us to overreach and, in, and interfere with people's freedoms. What, what can we learn? Can you share a perspective as a religious liberty um, uh, expert, one who serves, and I shouldn't say that with, uh, I think what I'm wanting to uh, communicate is that all of us have to sort through uh, the questions of individual freedom. We are, we're benefited by your scholarship and service, Nick, but I, I want to know how do, how do we learn then? What can you tell us that will help us today and in the future when it comes to the stewardship of liberty? Well, that's a great question. You know, uh, there's a, a saying among government leaders, let no crisis go unwasted, right? Yeah. It, yeah. It's not that government leaders generally want crises. They're difficult and hard times for everyone. But when one happens, as a government leader, you can take on all sorts of power and authority that you wouldn't have at other times. And as citizens, we need to be vigilant. We need to be watching closely um, to make sure that whatever powers the government takes on, as it may need to during this time of difficulty and crisis, that those powers are let go of, are relinquished as, uh, as the safety measures, uh, the need for safety measures decreases. And I think as we, especially as we look at the economic situation here, we focus primarily on the health issues, but uh, most people are aware that this closure is causing increasing economic stress and distress. We've had a record number of, uh, of job losses. I think yes. um, before, I think there was uh, 750,000 jobs lost in a single uh, week or was it month back in the 1980s and uh, three weeks ago they lost three million jobs in one week and then the next week uh, six million and I believe we're up to about 18 million jobs lost at this point which is just a huge amount now we pray that that's temporary and as the as we maybe head towards more openings we hope in, in May and June that though many of those jobs will be regained. But certainly there's an economic impact here that is extraordinary that we probably haven't seen since the Great Depression of 1929. And that is making the government important and central in all of our lives economically. With the bailout bill, uh, with people just grounded, businesses closed, everyone's looking to the government to restart the economy to keep the economy moving through infusions of of money and cash and it's not hard to see where the scenario of Revelation 13 where there's a centralized power both nationally and then internationally becomes a reality I mean we're almost there uh, the US government is two trillion dollar bailout debt money going to all businesses including not-for-profit organizations including churches and I'm not saying this is a bad thing. In fact, I've been an advocate for churches actually taking this money from the government. It's a loan, uh, but it's a loan that can be forgiven. And I think that it, it, um, 
it doesn't violate the separation of church and state because governments have been, I mean, churches have been closed because of order of the government, and it's benefited the whole community. And now the government is trying to repair some of the damage that it's done to all these organizations, including churches, and we've looked closely at it, and there don't seem to be strings attached. So for those pastors and conferences, I know my own conference and union have, have applied for this, but but and that's short term that's okay but long term long term we need to keep our eye on this question because the government is now going to be at the center of the economy and it's going to happen internationally as well because this this whole episode has shown how we're all interconnected there is no separate country that's an island all on its own biologically we're connected somebody sneezes in wuhan and the rest of the world has to be quarantined but economically, we're also connected. Uh, the loss of jobs and, and financial um, streaming and organization in, in America is impacting the world and vice versa. And these conditions on which Revelation 13 is based, they are rapidly being put together. And we much, must watch very closely. We should try to maintain financial independence. Now is a time to be paying down our personal debts. Uh, to get out of debt, because during a time of economic crisis, being financially free and clear and independent gives you so many more options. Um, we need to stay near our Bibles, near Jesus, and uh, studying uh, the books of Daniel and Revelation and looking for the principles uh, that will apply to the days in which we live. You're, you're describing that this crisis uh, makes our stewardship of religious liberty all the more important. I believe so, uh, yes. Now, uh, Nick, um, if I were to say from my, uh, my viewpoint is more distanced than yours. I have an area of interest and study and expertise, and then I look to leaders in religious liberty such as yourself, but I, I would bring a question to you that I think all of us would be interested perhaps in, in some reflection. It seems to me that in the past five or 10 years, there has been a trend in government, in society, because government is an outgrowth, a product of we as the people. That's what we do, it's how we structure ourselves that there is a shift towards authoritarianism. Am I imagining that, or do you have any comment on that? That there's been a shift towards authoritarianism, um, yeah. generally? Uh, well, I think what we are certainly noticing, and I'm not the first to comment on this, is that it's a, a shift to what we might call populism. And you know, there's various kinds of authoritarianism. Um, you can have, uh, you know, military dictators and uh, the dictator of the elites. But what we're seeing, both in our country and overseas in many European countries, is the emergence of leadership based on uh, a wide group of people. And I, I, I hesitate here because I don't populism isn't necessarily a bad thing it, it just literally means for the people or of the people and and we care about the people but what we're looking at is a rise of something called nationalistic populism 
And again, nationalism, it's good to be proud of your country, but too often nationalism can bleed over into xenophobic nationalist populism, where we believe our people are the best people, the chosen people, the exceptional people, and they need to be protected and uplifted at the expense of others. And the others are immigrants, uh, other people not of my faith or my ethnicity. And unfortunately, that has been part of this resurgent populism uh, that we've seen to some degree in our country, in England, and other European countries, where there's been an intolerance and a dismissiveness of outsiders, of immigrants, of people not of our faith, of Muslims, and of others. And we should be very concerned about this. It's not just a political issue. Some people uh, are quick to label this perspective kind of left-wing uh, view of, of politics, but it's, it's not really. It's a concern that we create an elite group in society that are privileged over others based somehow on their religious, uh, racial, ethnic, national identity. And these are very dangerous movements that we saw arising in Europe in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, and we as Adventists need to keep a careful eye on those movements and also to recognize that we've been told that final events would revolve around a populism. Uh, if you recall reading Great Controversy, it's not some sort of religious elite leadership that impose religious laws and restrictions and what we've uh, historically, prophetically believed to be Sunday laws, but it's actually leaders responding to a popular outcry of the people, right? The final mm -hmm. events of intolerance are called for by a majority. It is a populist, nationalist, religious movement. And we as Adventists need to be very cautious of that, preaching about it carefully, because many of our members are caught up in a nationalist sort of fervor. They can't see the difference between being patriotic Americans and patriotic Christians. Um, and these things need to be, we need to educate our members to see the important uh, distinctions between our patriotism, nationalism, and our religious commitments. And ultimately, at the end of the day, those, are, those must be separate things. Is there something of a, uh, a civil religion that uh, in this process uh, comes to the surface? We used to uh, speak of uh, the sense of a civil religion in America, the American idea, the American civil religion. Does that relate at all to the issues of our religious liberty? Well, I think it does. And, you know, I actually have sort of a moderate position on the notion of civil religion. I, I have come to believe that some larger sense of, of um, ultimate reality is important for a nation, you know, our founders believed in the separation of church and state. Thomas Jefferson, in fact, coined the phrase, the wall of, of separation of church and state, at least in the, the civil sphere. He was drawing on an older met metaphor of, of Roger Williams, uh, the leader in Rhode Island. Um, but even Thomas Jefferson, 
he was the one that wrote those famous words of the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Uh -huh. So what's Mr. Jefferson, the kind of ultimate church-state separationist, doing uh, appealing to a creator in our founding political document? And um, people back then had a more nuanced and sophisticated view of religion and its relationship to God. They believed that religion was perhaps a particular uh, denominational way to interpret uh, ultimate reality and to worship, but that the very notion of a god, a god who gives rights, was not necessarily confined to any single religion. Rather, it was something that could be known through a general natural theology and that it was useful for of not only philosophers but political thinkers to acknowledge the existence of a higher power of a god that was above and beyond uh, the government and to which the government itself uh, was subject and which limited the behavior of the government. So civil religion in that respect is as old as the American Republic itself. The problem we have is when people want to take that civil religion and really turn it into an official Christian religion of the American government or republic or nation. And that is to do what our founders, in fact, did not wish to be done. And it is what causes us problems then in viewing Muslims as outsiders and, and other religious groups as outsiders and not quite fully as American as, as we Christians. So that's the civil religion to be avoided. Oh, that's interesting. My Nick, we're we're coming to the end of our time, and yet I said I wish we could have another conversation on a different issue, but that is another day. Now, in just closing in summary, it would not be responsible for me to uh, bid you adieu without uh, offering uh, us as those participating in the conversation by listening the question to you, any, any final comment as, as to a reflection on the state of religious liberty in America or the world that you'd like to uh, leave us with? Well, right now is an extraordinarily dynamic time. Uh, I mean, we've never, any of us have never, never experienced anything like this. And how, you know, all the churches are closed. You and I are not attending church currently. And there's going to be an enormous number of questions that are raised as we begin society uh, opening up, which will happen over the next few weeks and months. Are churches listed as essential services? Uh, will restrictions on churches be raised more slowly than others? Uh, all of these things are going to require local pastors and religious liberty leaders to respond locally. Um, it, it, gone is the day when we can just rely on a religious liberty leader in Washington monitoring Congress for us, because as we've seen, restrictions are state-level restrictions. Sometimes they're even county-level restrictions. And so each part of the church is going to have to be thinking through and responding, and if necessary, standing up for its religious freedoms um, and, and not necessarily having counsel from the senior leaders or lawyers in the church because we're going to be so busy uh, handling things in other places. So just as uh, Rublev, uh, Rubel caused for every member to be a 
medical uh, missionary in their community. Uh, so I think we're entering a time when every member is going to need to be a thinker about religious freedom and church and state and be willing to be a liberty activist in their communities as well. Wow, yeah. That, that is uh, an important reflection, and yeah, <laughs> very good. Well, we have been uh, listening and visiting with Dr. Nicholas Miller. Nick, thank you so much. And uh, listeners, please do uh, look for articles, access the work and contributions of Nick. Uh, blessings on you, Nick. Thank you. We, we miss you and Joni here, but you're not, not missing out on the snowstorm we're having this morning. <laughs> well, you, uh, you serve from that beautiful state of Michigan, which has varied winter weather. This is uh, Skip Bell. Thank you, folks, for joining us on Recalculating Adventist Life Now. Until next time, keep thinking, keep believing.